Hello and welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big story of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, hi. How are you, Brent? I'm very well, thank you. Well, we've been exploring how God's story encompasses the mythic uh, the myths and the stories of the classical world of Greece and Rome with Lewis Marcos. Uh, and we heard uh, last time from David Downing how C.S. Lewis used story to spread the gospel. I like this idea of using story to put across the gospel in imaginative ways. How do you feel about it, Rito? I love it. It's There's something about stories, isn't there, that captures our hearts and our imaginations. Uh, and Lewis just was able to do it in such a beautiful way where it, it felt like he was he was just telling a story and he wasn't telling us the gospel, uh, but he somehow, I don't know if it sneaks in, if it's the right word, but he just, he's able to capture our hearts and show us uh, the, the biggest story that's going on in terms of God's story in some of his stories. Mm. Well, today we're continuing with God's story and we're back in the letter to the, the epistle to the Hebrews. And so far, Ian, we've seen that Jesus is greater than the angels and that he created the universe and sustains all things. And we've also seen that he's greater than Moses. But why is the author of Hebrews trying to convince us that Jesus is better, Rido? Well, it's really, I think it's because of, of who it's written to. And the uh, it's written to a group of Jewish people who are kind of struggling with how do we apply and how do we understand who Jesus is? Uh, how do we live this out, this new gospel that we're hearing? How do we understand it rightly? Uh, but, but most importantly, how do we relate it back to the Old Testament and how does that kind of work our way and our faith and, and our life in terms of obeying the law, understanding should we still be obedient to what Moses said and, and how about the angels that, that gave the law and, and all these types of things? They, they've got all of these questions, and I think they're, they're trying to work them out together. And obviously, one of the major issues is that we can't have Jesus and something else. No, we can't, can we? And this is something that just keeps popping up in the book, is that uh, if, if you have Jesus plus something else, you end up with nothing at all. And... It's just one of the the big the big tragedies often that keeps cropping up in the church is that we try and add something on to our faith, uh, and obviously it was th- right there at the beginning of the the early church, and uh, this is being dealt with early on. Mm-hmm. Well, we ended chapter three with a warning, Rito, and this continues into chapter four with the theme of rest. Shall I read it? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, please do that. Yeah, I'm doing. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Well, what's the writer saying about rest here then? Well, this idea of rest is one of these themes that permeates the whole Bible, and it's the the idea of entering God's presence, entering God's Sabbath. It's right there at the beginning of the Bible where God rests on the seventh day uh, and that the Garden of Eden was a part of that rest. But the big thing that's being referred to here is entering into God's promised land, that there was a group of people standing right on the edge of that promised land, which is God's rest, uh, and they stood there, they, they peered in 
but they weren't allowed to enter. Why is rest or Sabbath so important in the Bible, do you think? Well, it's I think it's it's about understanding what we are created for. And so I think what we see in the Bible is that that when we enter that rest with God, this is what we're created for. We're into, for we, we are created for relationship with him. We're created uh, to be in peace, at peace with him. And so it's bigger than just kind of not doing anything. It's, it's not that, but it's actually everything in harmony together. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, uh, and just our relationship with the world and every, everything just kind of fitting together uh, and everything resting in the way that it should be. How does the idea of rest go back to creation week and then to Eden? So we've got this idea that God works uh, right at the beginning and he's working and creating. uh, And then on the seventh day he rests. And then you've got this interesting thing happening in uh, Genesis 1 and then it continues on into Genesis 2 where God creates and then it's the end of the day and then he looks at his work and he kind of says it's good. But then, and so there's this kind of pattern set up there, but then you get to uh, the, the seventh day in chapter two of Genesis, and that doesn't follow that pattern. God God just rests on that day and there's morning, but there's no no kind of evening. And it just kind of, it just seems to go on kind of from that point onwards. Mm, how is the idea of rest then fulfilled in scripture? Well, it's always, we're looking forward to it through the Old Testament. So you get glimpses of it at different spots. Uh, in the, with the promised land, you kind of get a glimpse of it there. With the temple, I think you get a little bit of a glimpse of it there. But ultimately, it must be fulfilled in who Jesus is. And it's kind of, it's, this is the, the picture that we get uh, of the new heavens and the new earth, I think, in Revelation 21, where God is with his people. And it's not that uh, the, the heavens are this place that we go off to, but when God comes, uh, that, that is what where rest is found. I mean, and you kind of get glimpses of that in the gospels, don't you? Where, where when Jesus comes, he, uh, he kind of invibes rest. He, he goes around and he touches people and they're healed. He provides food. He calms the, the storm things like that, where he's bringing peace to earth in a way that has never happened before. And I think that's, that will be fulfilled. So it is already kind of happening in Jesus and we see it in the gospels, but it will be fulfilled in a, in a greater and uh, more beautiful way and incompleteness uh, in the new heavens and new earth. So the new heavens and the new earth are going to bring us into our final rest, presumably. Let's hope so. Yes, definitely. It's not, a, it's not a, it's not a hope so as it might not happen, but it's a hope so as it will happen. And we're hoping for that, isn't it? Why had the generation uh, that the author is writing about here? Why had that generation not entered God's rest? I think this is really this is a really interesting thing, isn't it? That we often look back at the uh, the Israelites leaving uh, the slavery, but we forget that that generation didn't actually get into the promised land. So they they're the ones that are saved out of slavery. They're freed from that. But then they, they fail to take hold of the promised land as their possession. And the reason is, is because they do not believe. They, they're kind of standing on the edge of the promised land. They send their spies in to have a look. The spies come back and say, except for two of them, uh, this, is, this is no good. They're, they're too big. They're too mighty. We're, not, we're never going to be able to take it. And they don't believe that God can, can take them in. So how is God's rest open for those of us who do believe? Well, this is the, the beauty of what's being said here, isn't it? 
that there is a, a rest waiting for us, but the rest here is not that that promised land of a physical place, but a promised land of a relationship with 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 God, and it stands open to anyone who does believe. And we kind of have the warning here is is showing us that we shouldn't be like them; that we need to do the opposite uh, to what they did. And so you have there in verse two uh, that that because they were not united by faith with those who listen, they're not allowed to go in. Uh, and so you have here anyone who can enter, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he had said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. We have here uh, this idea that God hasn't allowed them to go in because of their unbelief, but if we do believe, the opposite is true. We, we will go into that promised land. I'm going to carry on and read from where you left off, uh, which is verse four, is it? For he has yep. some for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And why do you say what we need is a rest heart, not a desert heart? Well, what happens is uh, the, uh, the people, they're, they're standing on the edge of that promised land in the Old Testament. They're looking in and they're pining for what they, what they missed in Egypt. So you have all of these things that they missed out on. They say, oh, the leeks and the melons. Personally, I wouldn't be craving a leek, uh, but, you know, kind of no. there's all these. <laughs> and the, the, I think they, they said some other, like the flesh pots, I think, is, is, the, is the old word for, <laughs> that they say. Uh, but you have all of these kind of weird things that they're craving, the, the garlic and the onions and things like that. Uh, but they fail to see the, the huge promise that is before them. And so they want to go back to their slavery uh, because it, it kind of produced safety. What's ahead of them? Sure, it looks unsafe, but there is an abundance uh, before them. And it's the same for us, that we are, this is a warning saying we're on the edge of that promised land. We can see into that promised land. It, it's there. It's, it's secure. But if we put our eyes in this world, put our eyes and our hopes to the, into those things around us, it's going to be difficult to 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 see the abundance that God has in store for us. What do we need to do then to enter God's rest, according to the writer to Hebrews? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Believe. It's kind of a, it's 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 not a, a difficult thing. It's um, I think it's it's quite it's quite easy. And when you look in the Old Testament at uh, them not entering, it's they they don't enter because they don't believe that God can do it. They don't believe that God is able to take them in uh, and conquer the people that are in there. And so there's kind of two things that, that are working together, their action and their belief kind of going together, but it's they, the action doesn't flow out of the belief. They don't believe that God can do it, so they don't do it. In what sense, though, is the rest still to come here? Which, which verse are you looking at there? Uh, I'm looking at verses Sorry, three, three to seven uh, towards the end. Right. In what in what sense does does the rest is the rest still to come? Uh, you're looking at verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Yeah, it's kind of this idea of we're not there yet, are we? 
No. Uh, and, and though, you know, they didn't enter because of their disobedience, that it's the same for us, that if we uh, kind of don't believe, if we fail to, t- to take on the, the hope and the obedience and the, um, and the belief, then, you know, the rest won't be open to us. Uh, but also it's, we're not quite there yet. It's, it's not in terms of um, a lack of, our, of God's inability to take us all the way there. He has taken us all the way there. Uh, but there's something that we're still hoping for. We're standing on the edge of the promised land, looking into the new creation uh, and waiting for that to come about. Mm. Uh, verses 8 to 10, I'll just carry on reading as we study through it. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So in what sense, Rito, was Eden and the Sabbath and the promised land uh, just shadows of the real rest to come? The good word, that, that word shadow, isn't it? And they're all pointing forward to the real rest. And that real rest is relationship with God. So you got there, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. It's something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, it's something that we're waiting for. Uh, but all of those things are pointing forward to that real rest, that there is a day coming where we will have rest with God, where relationship will be restored, where we will be with him forever. Why are we so afraid of resting in God? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. I wonder if it has something to do uh, with it. it. It can be very scary, can't it? Because when you say to God, you know, take, take all of my, my hopes, take all of who I am, and, and I'm going to place them in you, it leaves a lot of uncertainty about, and, and I want to have control over my life. I want there to be security. I want there to be you know, kind of everything nice and ordered and in place. But if I say to God, hey, you can take it all and I'll rest in you no matter what comes my way. I know that you, you're trustworthy. That's a scary thing to do. We get mention of Joshua there in verse 8. It, why is Jesus the real Joshua? Yeah, this would have been something that the people reading this, the original readers, they would have picked up on that, that the word Joshua and the word Jesus is actually the same. And they would have kind of, kind of would have been an aha kind of moment for them that Joshua takes them into the rest. So Joshua being uh, the God's kind of leader after Moses, God takes them, Joshua takes them physically into the rest, uh, but he's only pointing forward to, another Joshua, one who saves. That's what the word Joshua means or Jesus means. So they're looking, pointing forward to another time when someone is going to come uh, and and look after his people, take them into the rest, lead them in. So the thing with Joshua, though, is that he dies uh, and the people turn away and it kind of ends up pretty badly in the book of Judges. But we, So we need someone who's like Joshua but better in that he, doesn't, he won't die. And won't pass away, but continue to lead us forever. And it's the same name, isn't it? Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. Yeah, exactly the same name. And as I said, I think that that would have been something that the original readers would have just gone, oh, look at that. You know, kind of, that's the same. Clearly, there's a connection there that we need to make. Yeah, verse 11, looking at verse 11, I'll just reread it. Where are we? Uh, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what are we being exhorted to do here, Rito? Believe. <laughs> Believe. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's pretty simple, I think. Um, the same sort of disobedience. It's nothing specific, I don't think, other than we, we need to believe. You, you just it's, it's quite simple. How do we make every effort to enter God's rest? Yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? And we could look at that and go, oh, I need to you know, kind of pull my socks up and do a bit better than I've been doing. And you know, as a pastor, you can kind of get up the front of church and bang the pulpit and kind of say, you know, you, you haven't been doing what you, you know, making every effort. You need to be making every effort. The problem is that if people looked at my life, they'd be saying the same thing. I, I'm not always making every effort either, uh, but that the every effort is about belief. It's about looking away from ourselves, looking uh, to Jesus rather than looking inward. If I look inward, it's only going to be, there's not going to be a lot to look at there. A, there's a lot of sin there that, that still needs to be dealt with, uh, but which God is dealing with. But if I look outward and I look to Jesus, uh, then that every effort actually becomes no effort at all because he has made all the effort already. Mm. So Jesus really takes us all the way. Definitely. Uh, there is nothing more that needs to be done. And this is what we're exploring in Hebrews, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That Jesus has that Jesus has taken us all the way. And there's going to be some little pockets of gems that we're going to pick up on, on our journey through to see that we have been taken all of the way uh, and that we are already made holy and already in relationship uh, with God, our Father. Yeah, we talked about this uh, in previous weeks, I think. But what would you say to someone who was listening who say, well, I don't feel as I'm being taken all the way. I feel bound in guilt and I, f- I, feel, I don't feel like a Christian. What sort of inspiration, what sort of wisdom can Hebrews give someone like that? This is one of those things where, which I think takes time to kind of work our way through. We need to be convinced over and over again. And we all have times where we feel like that. But the, the, the key thing is to keep our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus. Jesus is a great saviour. And as we walk through Hebrews, this is what we're going to see is that how good Jesus is, how he has taken us all the way. And often when, when I've read Hebrews, I've got this kind of feeling of, this is too good to be true. This this can't this can't be right. I've, there's something wrong with my theology because this cannot be true. Uh, but then, as I stop and reflect on it, that if it's not true, then really I've got no hope at all because I've got I am just a hopeless person. My sin abounds, even though I don't want it to. Uh, but Jesus is working in me, and when I put my eyes on Him, those fears, uh, those doubts, they 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 tend to go away but I need to keep doing it all the time. Okay, well, let's come on to verses 12 to 13. Where are we? Yes, verse 12. For the word of God is... Li- oh, this, oh, this is a fabulous verse, Rito. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and reading on to verse 13 and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account now why do we now get this after all the talk about resting and rest in the lord and jesus taking us all the way and so on why do we now get this verse about the word of god being like a double-edged sword rito 
That, that's a very good question. Well picked up there, Brent. When you uh, actually work your way through the passage, verse 12 just doesn't seem to fit, uh, particularly the way that we read it as well, is that this is, is this really positive verse that it's about, you know, God, have you ever had a poster kind of on the wall or, you know, kind of as your, mm-hmm. as your background somewhere, you know, that verse 12, the word of God is living and active, or you, you've sent it to a friend, you know, look how positive it is. It's actually, it's actually a very negative verse and this kind of disrupts people a little bit. I'm sorry for, for doing that, but it, it, at the end of the day, it's positive. Uh, but what it's saying is uh, it's, it's referring back to that time where Joshua was about to enter the promised land. And as he goes up to Jericho, uh, he meets a man. And he meets a man with a sword, and, it's, and it turns out to be an angel. Uh, and th- this angel is standing there uh, before Jericho. And Joshua goes up to him and says, hey, are you with us or are you against us? And the angel turns to Joshua and says, I- I'm neither. I'm the, the, kind of the, the head of God's army. Uh, and this is what I've come to do. And this is what it's referring to. It's kind of, it's going back to that and saying, uh, where you are standing on the edge of the promised land, but God's word is like that angel. A two, he has a two-edged sword willing to cut you to pieces uh, if you try and enter without going through the right path. And the right path is quite simple. It's through belief. How does that delete the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord. How does the, that sword image take us back to the cherubim with the flaming sword that that guarded Eden back in Genesis? Yeah, that that you've got that picture that kind of the whole way through Scripture of an angel with a sword guarding God's rest, uh, and that's what's being picked up here. So you've got it when right at the beginning of Adam with Adam and Eve as they kicked out of the garden. What do you have guarding Eden is is cherubim with swords, when we get to later on with the temple uh, and the curtain, what's guarding the Holy of Holies, little pictures of angels with swords. Uh, on Exactly, yep, cherubim with swords. Uh, and here, again, what you have on the edge of the promised land, you have this cherubim, you have this angel standing there with a sword saying, hey, I'm protecting God's rest, I'm protecting God's place. How does God's word then penetrate us? That's a good question. And it says that there's living and active as well, isn't it? And I think it's, it's a, it has to be about truth, doesn't it? That it pierces right through us. Uh, and because it is about truth, it is able to, it says they discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's not just words that we might say, which kind of have meaning or we might miscommunicate to each other. God's word doesn't do that. It, it cuts right to the truth and cuts right to the heart of, of what we're thinking, of who we are, uh, and even about our relationship with him as well. Can the word of God divide churches, Rito? Well, that's a good question. I guess it, it depends on if, 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 there's a, if you're a real church or not, I guess, maybe, uh, that if um, there's probably diff- different ways of, under- of thinking about that one would be, if churches are, are holding up God's word and uh, trying to live by it, and then and then you've got other people within the church who don't believe it's God's word, then of course it's going to it's going to cause division. Uh, that some are going to hold to the truth and others aren't. Uh, then you've got then you you possibly do have some 
disagreements in churches over God's word, uh, even though people are trying to hold to the same truth. Uh, but yeah, it, it can happen. Uh, but often what happens is that kind of the, the truth wins out at the end of the day. It may be small when that does happen, uh, but God's word tends to, uh, tends to last on. When you look at denominations and Christian organizations that have kind of thought, oh, particularly with God's word, let's push it to the side a little bit. Let's not have it uh, at the center. They end up dying out over time. Uh, and, you know, kind of the truth ends up winning out in the day. How do we know then, according to Hebrews, that we're not going to fall or fail? Well, are you referring to the next little bit there? I'm still referring to verses 12 to 13, oh. I think, uh, Rito. Just let me check. Okay. Yep, uh, I think so, yes. Okay. So the – well, it's not, not up to us, is it? Uh, and you've got there in 13, and no creature's – is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed into the eyes of t- of him to whom we must give an account. That that kind of sounds a little bit scary uh, to me, uh, but it's it's not scary to those who come and believe. You got right at the beginning. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the, s- the same sort of disobedience. We, we don't need to worry because that falling away uh, is not going to, to be a problem if we keep our eyes on Jesus. And, and this, is, this is something that really kind of scares people, isn't it? That, that, so that no one may fall, uh, that, that idea of, having, of falling away. And we've all thought about that at times, haven't we? Am I really, uh, have I really made a commitment? Am I really chosen, depending on your uh, theological commitments? And, and we kind of worry about those things. But the idea here is, is not to worry them. It is a little bit of a warning, but he's not worry, trying to make them worry about if they're saved or not. He's just trying to get them to look to Jesus. Well, coming on to verse 14, which I think is the last verse we're going to deal with this, this time. Uh, we come on to this magnificent section about Jesus. How great! I just love this. This is one of my favorite chunks of scripture. He says in verse 14 of chapter 4, Since then, having talked about the rest, since then uh, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So how has Jesus then gone before us, Rito? Well, this is something that gets picked up a little bit later on uh, as well about the, about Jesus being the high priest. It pops up a few times in Hebrews, uh, but here we have who's passed through the heavens. And, I, and my guess is that it's a reference uh, to Jesus' death, resurrection, uh, but then his ascension, that he is now gone and seated and is seated with God uh, already. So there's hope there uh, that he's already there as our high priest. And we'll, we'll pick up on that idea of what it means to be a high priest uh, in, in the next episode in, in chapter five. Uh, but it is, it is beautiful, isn't it? Mm. Let us hold fast. Our confession is, is kind of a, it's, it's not a, if you don't do this, it's going to be trouble. It's a, this is truth. Hey, understand the truth and believe it. In what sense is Jesus our great high priest? What does he mean? Well, what, is, what does a high priest do? A high priest kind of stands before God as an intercessor. It's a big word, isn't it? Someone who stands between, advocates on our behalf. Uh, and the high priest had a very important role in the Old Testament uh, in providing sacrifices for the people, but also counselling the people and kind of acting as the intermediary between uh, between the holy God and the sinful people. 
And here we have Jesus being referred to as that great high priest, being an advocate uh, for the people, but also representing a holy God at the same time. And once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple, didn't he? And uh, performed these acts of atonement. And how does that point to Jesus? Well, yeah, that was called Yom, Yom Kippur, the which is atonement. the day of it. Yep. Mm, yep. And the, uh, this gets picked up a little bit later, but you have this idea of the priest going in and making sacrifices for the people kind of once a year. So there were, there were other sacrifices being made uh, all, of, all of the time, every day. But you have this one special sacrifice of atonement. And it's saying here that Jesus has made that sacrifice, the once, uh, that kind of once a year sacrifice, Jesus has made it. And we're going to pick that up later where it says he's made it once and for all. This is really interesting statement that keeps popping up in Hebrews is this once and for all. So what does this, and just coming to a conclusion of, of our time, what does this mean for us that Jesus has entered the heavenly places as our better high priest, as our greater high priest, and done this once and for all? What does that mean for, for Christians today? We can have confidence that it's not up to us, but it's up to Jesus. And this is the thing that we keep coming back to, isn't it, Brent, in, in Hebrews, is that it isn't up to us if we put our eyes on Jesus, our fix our eyes on Jesus. I think that was in chapter chapter three. Mm. Uh, then, then, And this is what we need to keep doing. We can have confidence that Jesus has done what he said he was going to do. He was going to make atonement for us. Uh, he has made atonement for us. And he has brought us all the way in to the Father. And this is one of the, the things that gets picked up again later on, is that where has Jesus taken us? He's taken us to a loving Father something that we we often think that God is uh, a God of judgment, but uh, we don't need to worry about that if we have faith in Jesus. Mm. Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand, thank you so much for your time. Next time, uh, Ian, I think we're going to come on and look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 10, where we will find out more about Jesus, our great high priest. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.